0: We're talking about Windows XP today, right?
1: Yeah, Yeah. that's it. Windows XP. (laughs) That's why we're using Skype.
2: Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrocks.com/slash. This show is sponsored by Heroku Postgres. They're the largest provider of Postgres databases in the world and provide the ability for you to fork and follow your database just like your code. There's easy sharing through data clips or just your data, and to date, they have never lost a bite of data. So go and sign up at postgres.heroku.com. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMind by going to jetbrains.com ruby. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Ruby Rogues, episode 109. Um, before we get started, I just want to make sure that you know, many of you have complained that we don't have all of our episodes in the backlog. I am fixing that. Um, about half of you have moved over to the uh, original feed, but half of you are still stuck on FeedBurner. I'm going to turn off the FeedBurner feed, after this episode is released it should redirect you to the new feed but if you don't get any episodes after that keep that in mind and please resubscribe in itunes that's that's my big announcement but then i can We're turn going away well then i can turn it on so that people can get all of the backup episodes which is something that a lot of people have been asking for so Woo-hoo. yay i fixed it and Yeah, just as a side note, this just barely, the same problem just barely happened to JavaScript Jabber, so I'm going to be fixing them too. Anyway, um, so yeah, let's get the show started. This week on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Hello, hello. We have Josh Susser.
3: Hey, good morning, everyone, from uh, sunny and cheerful
2: San Francisco. James Edward Gray.
1: I am still included in our RSS feed.
2: I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and we have a special guest this week, and that is Will
4: Reed. Good morning.
2: Did I say your name right?
4: You did. You got it. Awesome. Late letters.
2: So uh, do you want to introduce yourself for the folks who aren't familiar with you?
4: Sure. So uh, I am a pivot, which means I work at Pivotal Labs, uh, one of, one of, I guess, several shops across the country or globe that, uh, that are strong practitioners of extreme programming. And I uh, actually worked, overlapped with Josh Susser for a while back when he was pivot.
3: Nice. Yeah, but but you don't you don't hold that against me.
1: <laughs> right? he still came on the show. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, so so we had been uh, talking for a little bit about wanting to do a show on XP and I said, hey, you know, those those pivots are, are pretty good at that. So let's get someone from Pivotal on here to talk about the pivotal style XP.
1: So Josh won't ask because he's an ex-pivot and I have to do his job for him, but can we define XP?
4: Yeah, let's do that. So, I pulled up, uh, pulled up what Wikipedia's got. And, it's a version
2: of Windows, right? Definitely last good version
0: of Windows, right?
4: I've heard that. Sure, <laughs> for, sure, for extreme programming, where uh, it's a it's a methodology built on top of the agile values, right? Set of practices that uh, sort of value frequent releases, pair programming usually goes hand in hand with it. Uh, Test driven development and a lot of other developer kind of focus practices. Yeah, w- where was XP first defined? Where was it?
3: Yeah, w- was that Kent's book? Kent Beck did his Extreme Programming Explained.
4: It definitely is the the definitive resource, right? I don't know. I don't know much about its inception, though. You know what? Uh, who was doing it first? What it was born out of, and those kinds of things.
3: Well, I, I think that um, that both Kent Beck and Rob Mee were instrumental in defining it. Definitely. For those uh, playing along at home, Rob Mee is the founder of
4: Pivotal Labs. But uh, yeah, and it works works super well for uh, for the consulting environment, where in a place where you're able to bill on on kind of time and materials instead of a fixed bid. Here's the the end result because it's so feedback based. Um, I think one of the one of the things that XP is great at is being able to understand what the customer wants and involve that definition as, as work is getting done. So it may be that you wanted X when you came in, but it turns out, Oh, there's the Y thing over here. It allows you to pivot. Right. And one of the, one of the interesting terms that fits well into our name. And, you know, you may never end up building that thing that was originally scoped, uh, which is good for the customer. Good for, uh, good for the user.
3: Okay. So, um, Maybe we should start with the, with the uh, Manifesto for Agile software development.
1: Yeah, we've <clears throat> talked about it a little bit in the past, but it's probably good to circle back.
3: So extreme programming, uh, Will, you just said this, it came out of the, the Agile <clears throat> manifesto principles, right? right. right. So, so extreme programming is practices that embody the, the principles in the Agile manifesto. And uh, the Agile manifesto doesn't really have anything about how to do it. It's all about the principles. So that's individuals in interactions over processes and tools, working software over comprehensive documentation, customer collaboration over contract negotiation, and responding to change over following a plan. And I always looked at at the Agile Manifesto and looked at it and said that this is all a reaction to not having powers of foresight. If uh, software development managers were psychic and could foresee the future, we wouldn't need Agile or XP. That's a good, that's
1: a good point.
4: Yeah, Probably it's we just... we go write software, right? we just go bet on a baseball game and win and... <laughs> they, they have betting on baseball? You can bet on baseball
1: now? Go to
2: Vegas, you can bet on anything. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so
1: it, it, I think another way maybe to describe it is the the Agile manifesto lays out the strategy... And then XP is a set of tactics, right? To aim for that strategy. Sorry. I like that analogy. So what are the should we should we talk about the specific tactics? What are they?
4: Sure. So I mentioned yeah. pair programming being being one of them, right?
3: Right. right. So okay. So so the, the thing about XP that uh, I think is worth clarifying is there's a whole bunch of things that people call agile, and XP is sort of the classic Set of practices around doing agile, but there's some other things that people call agile that aren't quite XP. What is it? Um, Scrum, yeah.
4: Kanban is another mm-hmm. flavor
3: of agile. Right. So, so I don't know if we want to talk about the differences between XP and those things now, or if we just want to mention there are some and leave it to people to check out on their own, or if we come back to it later.
1: Circle uh, so back after we yeah. figure out what's in XP.
3: Okay. So, so XP has like two big components there's like the development practices and then there's the i guess the project management practices
4: sure yeah yeah. the uh you're right. none of the development practices pair programming test-driven development continuous integration frequent deploys kind
1: of thing mm-hmm. we don't believe in any of that
4: no i've never heard anybody talk about those kinds of things as good and valuable and then uh I don't know what would you put under the project management stuff, Josh. I'm, I'm only thinking of like the iteration planning meetings, for example. It's right. still yeah. very light on that side.
3: Right, and, and retrospectives.
4: Okay. Sure. Yep. Uh, stand-ups.
3: I mean, ar- arguably that's part of the development practice, but I think I think it's more like keeping a hold of the project.
4: Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting um, not to. I mean, we said we were going to set this aside, but Scrum I think is kind of the opposite, where it is heavy on the the project management side, and very light on on developer practices. Um, well,
3: very, very light to the to the extent of zero. Right. I, I don't believe there are any developer practices in Scrum.
4: I guess it depends on where you put some of those retros and stand-ups. But yeah, exactly. So I think it, a, lot, a lot of times you'll see companies try to marry the two together. Uh, Salesforce is actually an, an interesting example of this, where they branded their own flavor of Agile, uh, implementation that is exactly that, a hybrid of Scrum and XP. And I forget what they called it, but uh, but this is what they do um, across their hundreds of developers, or even thousands at this point. So, uh, you know, if that's that's the kind of thing that you feel like your organization needs, it's certainly worth checking out and asking some mm-hmm. questions. So,
1: so Will, you had, you had something great to say about this in the pre-show, but I'm looking at this list. pair Programming, test-driven development, continuous integration, retrospective, stand-ups, these all have one thing in common. What's that thing?
4: It's a feedback, right? You know, pair programming you could think of as a as a very short loop code review cycle, and same thing for retrospectives, right? You're doing this regular team feedback loop. Stand ups in the morning are kind of a daily what's going on in the project and and what what do we need help on feedback loop. Um, every single piece is is built around. You know, how do we get better? How do we surface what's going on and then do something about it? Take action. Keep moving on on all this stuff.
2: So, so one thing that I've I've heard about all of these different practices is that any one of them can pay off. So you know pair programming, you know, has its benefits. Test driven development has its benefits. Continuous integration has its benefits. But uh, taken as a whole, all of these practices. All of these practices, and this is just what I've heard because I've never actually worked in a shop that did XP, but all of the XPers that I've talked to, uh, that sounded bad. Anyway, um, <laughs> they, they all basically say that all of these practices help, but taken together, they all reinforce each other, too.
4: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, the the case I like to make is uh, around test-driven development, which I think is is a fairly straightforward sell to a lot of developers where um, everyone says, oh, yeah, we need to write tests, and they start to see the value of writing them up front. But then when you roll that in with pair programming, now I'm not just talking to you about code, but I'm also creating this code representation of that conversation as well where I might say hello to you in the morning, and you say, good morning, Will. Um, it's the same thing with tests and actual code where you write the test first kind of as that greeting and then the actual implementation is the is the response back
1: yeah i so really this,
2: I really like that
1: <laughs> this kind of grew out of uh you know reaction to more waterfall centric practices where the the habit was to go long periods of time with no feedback right and that's that's the problem right if you can't. If you can't get feedback, you can't course correct, right? And the, the tighter you make that feedback loop, the, the sooner you can see a problem and, and start steering the ship. I,
3: I think that this is a little philosophizing on my part. Sorry about that in advance. But I, I think that the that the time when XP developed was, was an interesting time in software development. We were going through a transition from, you know, like the world was owned by, I guess, COBOL, up <laughs> and c up until that point, and the the development tools that were evolving at that time, you know like Smalltalk, uh, there were some really cool Lisp environments and other other uh, technological advancements meant the practice of developing software was changing fundamentally how people operated people went from you know over a course of a couple decades, people went from writing machine code in assembly by hand and feeding it in on punch cards to, oh, we're, we're developing Smalltalk in this graphical user interface that has a lot of really um, powerful incremental development tools. And the whole nature of development changed. And I think that rippled through all of the processes in what people were capable of. It used to be that getting changes implemented in software took so much effort. That it wasn't the, you know, like all the rest of the project planning and all that. I don't think had to work as hard to keep up with that part of the, of the process.
4: So, but, Josh, let but, me ask you. Let me let me extend that thought and ask you a question: Is would it have been impossible to arrive at XP if the tools hadn't evolved?
3: Oh, I think so. so I, I, I think that if if we were still in the day where you know your your product manager comes to you and says, okay, you know, we need to add you know a salutation. Field to the user so that we can, you know, ca- call them sir or madam as appropriate. That might have taken three weeks to implement, right? The right. In, in some ancient programming system. And if it takes that long to implement a little change, I think all of the tight feedback loop stuff in extreme programming would be, you know, would be a non-starter because there is no possibility of having a tight feedback loop.
1: I think right. Sorry. Go ahead. I I was just going to say, I think maybe one of the reasons we're so attracted to this kind of stuff in Ruby and Rails is that it it kind of fits, right? Rails is kind of, almost kind of a reaction against the heavy process of, you know, building web apps in the past. And so they've streamlined it, you know, uh, as much as they can and and thrown away all the stuff we, we don't think we need, or at least we don't need to worry about right now. And, you know, so that we can move at a faster pace and get to a prototype quicker, get to working software quicker. And then Agile makes all that more attractive, right? If we can uh, move to those steps and have a feedback loop so we can steer as we go, then all of that just kind of has this great synergy. I imagine that's why our community, more than a lot of others I see, is, is so... Focused on things like TDD and pair programming and stuff like that.
4: You think? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And the the maybe the anecdotal evidence that I have is looking at the the diversity of projects that we have at Pivotal. You know, go from from web apps, which is you know our our core Rails offering, but then we've also got mobile apps, which you know is deployed software and um, you know very close to shrink wrap, if you will. And the feedback loop there is a little bit bigger. And there's an interesting level of pain that comes with with that uh, when pivots kind of shift from going from web development to to mobile or even to some of our more uh, like DevOps heavy kind of stuff uh, where right now you're setting up VMs and you've got to get hundreds of them working to have a fully deployed kind of environment and, and that feedback loop is not seconds like it would be for a unit test. It's now minutes or even hours or potentially days, depending on what the uh, what the scale is and what's trying to be accomplished. And right, the longer that loop gets, the the, the louder the pain uh, goes with it. One other
2: thing that strikes me with a lot of this is I'm still looking at the manifesto and a lot of other technical industries. I mean, they, they really do teach their managers to focus on the things that are on the right side of the manifesto the processes and tools the comprehensive documentation uh, contract negotiation and following a plan and the reason is is because if they can streamline their process if they can make their tools better if they can you know document the entire thing and, and understand it then they can really they can they can save money and with software it's totally different because there's no process well there there's a process for building software but i'm not cranking out Ten, you know, ten million forums. You know, I'm not sitting down and and making the same thing over and over again. Everything is custom based on what my customer needs, and so in that sense, I mean, even if I'm doing an, an application that's similar to another application that I've already built, there are going to be things that are different, and that's why we need all of the things on the left, and all of those things um, require the feedback that we're talking about with XP.
1: Yeah, I, I just add to that that I think. You know, I've worked on over 60 shipping rails applications now, and in that time, the the horrible projects I've been involved with are the ones that had no constraints, right? It's like, it's a great thing to have to uh, be forced to some kind of time loop where not even that, you know, you have to have everything done by this date, but you have to have something done by this date, right? Because it really forces you to sit down and say, yeah, this can wait, right? This this isn't that critical or whatever. And then, and as you get that software live quicker, you get feedback from the people actually using the software, and that turns out to be the most valuable thing at all. You know, I I don't know how many times I've spent ridiculous amounts of effort on a feature that I could tell eight people were using. You know, it's it's pointless. So. Hmm.
3: Okay, so so we could talk more about particular practices. Uh, I, there's a, there's a, a couple other things like Will you wanted to talk about what it's good and bad for? I think you talked about that you know a little bit, but uh, you also wanted to talk about um, specific situations.
0: I want to right. uh, Ask a question about yeah. specific practices. Um, we know there there has been a lot of piecemeal adoption of the various XP practices across the industry. I'm curious if there are any particular practices. That have sort of that you've seen have fallen by the wayside that haven't been adopted as much and and maybe maybe should be.
3: So uh, th- this is this is the XP a la carte approach.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: I- I've heard the same term for Scrum. It's
2: called Scrum but. And in yep. honor of Dave, I want to I want to coin uh, extreme butt.
4: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: okay, folks, you heard it, heard it here first.
4: <laughs> That's right. Uh, just thinking about the, you know, one of the things that we do at Pivotal Labs is we pair with the the clients that come in, so we try to teach them our practices so that they can carry this forward and reduce the risk of of creating software. Because I think, in addition to the feedback loop, what what ultimately happens, or the reason that that companies are attracted to to these kinds of methodologies, is that it takes takes software out of the the risk factor, or at least identifies what pieces of the software are going to be risky as opposed to, well, there's this nebulous software thing that we sent off to the team and they're going to get back to us in a year and hopefully it'll be what we want. Um, it's much more quantifiable, but I think, so that's why they, they come to us, they work with us, and then we try to set them loose with uh, with those same practices. And they'll usually take stand-ups with them when they leave without too much of an issue, which are just these sort short meetings for those that don't know, in the, usually in the morning when you first come in. And you know a little bit of a status, a little bit of uh, what I'm blocked on, or sometimes it's uh, general information like, hey, we added this cool helper class that's really going to help you guys be more productive later on in the day. They'll usually take uh, continuous integration, so some sort of build monitor, right, that is watching the test run on some non-developer environment over and over again. Um, but like things like. Uh, pairing i think is the the quickest one to drop off and i think that one for me has a lot of value as an individual um but i think what's what's interesting about it is not every developer out there wants to pair um it's not psychologically set up for it and not that uh, that's a necessarily good or bad thing but that uh, if you want to have pair programming happening in your shop you've got to hire for it because it's just a it's a different skill set right it's not the same person that wants their headphones on and to be working in, you know, a nice closed cubicle or whatever. Um, it's 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 soft skills. I liken pair programming to writing code for eight hours a day plus being at a cocktail party the whole time because you've got to talk through what it is that you want and you know understand and listen to what that response is to be a, a social participant there. Right.
3: Okay. So, will you you you've started to touch on. Um, a topic that I wanted us to get into a little bit more, so maybe this is a good time to do it. And that's um, th- this is actually related to uh, what Sarah May was talking about in her keynote at RubyConf last year. What was that called? An insufficiency of good design, and right. she 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 was talking about Conway's law, where the product of a of a team is, you know, will f- will closely follow the structure of the team. Mm-hmm. That's the, uh, the great example is that a, a, f- a four-team project will produce a four-pass compiler.
1: The- my, f- my favorite way to look at that is the, the statement that all teams are perfectly designed to get the results they're getting right now. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, okay. So, but there's a, a bunch of things about team structure that have a big effect on per, a team being able to implement XP practices. Right. Yeah. L- like you need the customer on site and involved Other th- th- things like that so c- can we talk about like, if we want to do extreme programming what are the things that we need to do and, and not do in how we put our team together
4: right the things that we look for at, at Pivotal Labs that works out well is having uh, you know we try to shoot for a a customer uh, PM as you mentioned so someone you know a strong representative of what's actually being built uh, someone who can be the, the advocate for that. Um, not to say that, you know, our own developers don't get invested in what they're building, but someone's got to, got to understand and represent the business value, if you will, about, uh, about that product. And usually that's someone that, um, you know, is either conducting user testing themselves as things are going out, or they're working with one of our own designers to, to make those happen, but, uh, they're getting feedback both from, from their own company and from, from the people that they expect to be using this thing. Uh, so I'd say that's a big piece. Uh, co-location certainly helps. Um, I think this is kind of largely accepted to be true f- for anything, but, but as you're pairing and, uh, you know, engaging throughout the day in this social interaction, that co-location is, is, I don't want to say irreplaceable, but it's, it's tough to get the same value from from any other technique. We have plenty of a handful of pivots that are remote full time, and they're they're definitely more than functional within the context of uh, what we do, but it's it's not the same fidelity as someone who's sitting right next to you and you can read their body language and you can see that, hey, they're struggling with this or you know I need to ask more questions because clearly they've got a better understanding than I do of what what we're about to accomplish.
1: Hang on there. Well, I want to push back a tiny bit on that. I mean, right. like, I, I totally think you're right. Um, but I would say that, that as an industry, we're trying to push past that. Like, at least that's what I feel like I'm seeing. I mean, uh, remote pairing is getting crazy common. I, I mean, uh, you know, Avdi gave that, that talk and, and started pair with me. And, and it's been, it seems to be very popular. I see people doing it all the time, you know, trying to figure out what the right combination of tools is so that they can get, you know, a, a comfortable setup, you know, even when they're not in the same place. And then you've got companies like GitHub hiring more and more people and something like 50% of them are remote. I mean, and they, they pair on every uh, everything too, if I remember correctly. So um, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I think you're right that, that it's easier when you're face-to-face, but I would say that that's a problem we're heavily invested in getting past and we are making some inroads, too, do you think?
4: Oh, yeah, I definitely agree. Um, just looking at the tool chain that's that's evolved for remote pro- programming over, you know, the last three, four years that I've been at Pivotal, you know, it used to be kind of Skype-ish, kind of, you could use uh, screen sharing through... OSX, and that was sort of the state of the art. And now there's, um, you know, now there's web-based services that are you know, one click to walk up to, and you know they just work. I'm thinking about other stuff like Mad Eye that, uh, that's being developed through Google Hangouts, right, as an add-on, and leveraging that stuff so that you've got, you know, someone's face as part of the the interaction as well, in addition to audio and the screen sharing and those kinds of things. Or or C9 based off of the the Cloud9 open source project where you know it's, I think it's all written in Node, but it's that real time collaboration in a full fledged IDE. So as I type, you see what I'm typing, and we can run tests and deploy all from from that in the cloud kind of thing. So in in a shared environment, that's neither my machine nor your machine.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of people using t- Tmux and, and tools built on that as well, which. You know, the advantage there is the relatively low latency compared to uh, screen sharing tools and stuff mm, like right. that. So, so. Um, and then there's there's Screen Hero, which is pretty cool too. I, I do want to say, um, you know, I I talk to people about this stuff uh, every week on the Wide Teams podcast. And, you know, over and over, th- one story that I hear is that the situation, you know, the situation described as we have a few people who are remote um, is always the most problematic. You know, the, those are the teams that that I... I hear the most the most issues with. Yeah, and and uh, is that because the, as opposed to because, fully remote? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, once once you talk about teams that are are mostly distributed, you know, maybe they have a, an office that a few people come into sometimes, or that are completely distributed. And you know, and I've talked to a lot of people who have like who have been in both situations. You know, they they started out at a place where it was a few people remote, and then they moved on to a fully distributed team. And and you know, once once you're in that sink or swim situation you start to evolve, you know, a, according to Agile principles, you know, you, you evolve and adapt, you, you use that feedback loop and you start to evolve um, techniques and, and, and uh, strategies to, to make it work well.
1: Yeah, um, I think but, doesn't GitHub talk a lot about how, you know, like I said, I think they're somewhere around 50% remote or, or something like that. And they've talked about how, you know, if there's any significant communication then it has to go through, you know, their chat room or whatever, and that way, that that's for like, you know, to, you know, if, if you're having a conversation in the office, then only you two can benefit from that, right? Whereas if it's in the chat room, then all the remote people know what's going on and stuff like that too. So they and they have tons of infrastructure tools that are just designed around that that yeah. you know inner communication.
3: Yeah. So, so I guess. How I would say what Avdi was was getting at there is that you don't want to have the remote people be second class citizens, and having a exactly. bunch of stuff having a bunch of stuff happen face to face that they miss out on.
0: Yeah, and it's very very difficult if you have a group you know that's that has been uh, very focused on co located work for a long time not to make them second class citizens. You know, I mean, try as you might, I think that's a really difficult transition to make.
4: The other thing that we tend to do when we do have Remote members of a team is we'll uh, we'll bootstrap that relationship and have them come in for a week, two weeks, something where you know that FaceTime can happen and you can actually go out and have a beer with these people and right. and then all right now we're gonna go work remote and you've got that established uh, rapport with that person you kind of understand them a little bit better and know some of those ticks and things that that you wouldn't pick
1: up otherwise. That's a good point, actually. Like I think that's a great uh, yeah. it, a great way to go.
3: And in fact, that, that's like part of the pivotal process is that, that that that's like a standard part to put in the conversation with the client is, okay, you want to be here for a week at the beginning of the project to get the rapport established, and, and then we can get going. Yeah. I mean,
2: yep. yeah. I'd really like to a- ask a question that harks back a little bit to, to what, something you already said, and that is is that you mentioned um, that if you want pair programming or XP to happen on your team, you have to hire for it and we've talked a little bit about bringing people in-house and bootstrapping that, Uh but how do you identify people that will work well in an XP environment?
1: Pair with them the very first day. Yeah.
4: (laughs) That really is what it is. I mean, that's our interview process at Pivotal Labs, where we don't have a conference room that we're sticking people in and asking them, you know, the Google-Microsoft kind of questions. We said, please come sit with us for a morning and then an afternoon with another pair and you're going to peel something off the backlog and just work on it. You know, and there the interview is largely about, can you get out of your own head? Can you talk about, you know, the problem that you see? And it may not even be in a language that you're familiar with, right? We uh, will interview on a Rails project and it may be a .NET developer that we're working with. So the language is not important to us. We think that that's something that can be taught because you're going to pick up syntax just by sitting next to somebody without too much hassle if you're, if you've got the right aptitude to learn. But can you can you be that sociable person that I want to sit next to you for eight hours a day? Um, the best way to test for that is have them sit next to you for eight hours a day. It turns out.
3: Nice. <laughs> yeah, I, I I like the way uh, Rob Me always put it. It's like uh, you know, would you hire an actor based on a conversation about how they felt they performed in their last role? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. Oh, That's that crazy. happens way more often than it ought to. Doesn't it doesn't. <laughs>
1: I was I was looking through this list uh the extreme programming site has all the different components, the, the rules, uh, quote unquote, of XP, which I'm not sure I like the word rules, but, um,
4: we agree.
1: Yeah. But I was, I was looking through, um, this, it, it basically, uh, I was doing it because of Bobdi's question of which, which practices do you think, uh, people have passed on and, and, um, uh, The system metaphor is maybe one in uh, designing I don't see as often, and I always think is cool when I read about it in uh, XP books and stuff like that. Uh, The other one that drives me crazy in our industry is uh, sustainable pace. I think we are absolutely terrible at that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Will, talk about sustainable pace at Pivotal. Yeah. How many years have you been at Pivotal?
4: Uh, well, it started back in 2009, took a year long hiatus to go work for a startup and then came back. Uh, if that speaks, speaks anything to what I like about it. All. Right. Um,
3: yeah, I was there four years about, yep. for me, it was a very sustainable pace.
4: Right. The, I mean, the, 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 typical developer is expected to be there at nine o'clock. We serve breakfast to get everyone there on time. Um, and then. In most cases, you know, work is done by, by 6 p.m. And, you know, sort of the understanding there, I think, more than just the strict 9 to 6 um, or like 40 hours a week, if you will, is understanding that there's always going to be more work. Um, and that kind of on the flip side of that, where that's kind of daunting and scary, is that we're always working on the most important thing and because we use Tracker or, you know, any other tool that would highly prioritize what needs to be done um, in sort of a linear fashion, we know that the thing that we're peeling off next is the most important thing to the software that we're building. So if you ship it tomorrow, it's going to have the top features that we could possibly get done in the time that was allotted. And it's just so huge for, for team happiness, for, um, I think, for creativity as well, where, you know, your fellow engineer can go and, you know, either... Re-energize with his family, or go have a hobby afterwards, and then kind of bring that same experience back to to writing software, where he can relate to you know what it was like to coach. Maybe he's coaching you know little league baseball or something, and he can take that coaching skill and now apply it to working with a new developer who's trying to trying to learn some concept. Right? Those experiences enrich us and make us better at the things that we do at the core of, of every workday.
1: Yeah, just to be clear, I wasn't uh, attacking Pivotal there. I, I was oh, speaking sure. more to our uh, our consulting uh, culture, I think. And, uh, you know, it seems like uh, the pace of a lot of projects, it's a race to see if you can finish the project or the lead developer has a heart attack first, you know. Right, right. <laughs> that's what i trying to
4: highlight is it's easy to get wrapped up in doing everything, doing all the things that, that you think you need to do, and what XP steers you towards, you know, pivotal or not pivotal, is doing the most important thing. So you can find a place somewhere in there that's, that's short of doing all the stuff that is going to produce value for that end user, and that's what, what makes it sustainable, right? You can stop if, if you need to. Yeah,
3: so, so I, I think this is the heart of, of doing XP well. Is discipline. It you know it's it's like anything else, any other craft that you get good at. You know it's like oh I always forget the name of the painter. It's not Picasso who said something like you know I spend you know fourteen hours a day practicing for thirty years and now they call me a genius. You're right. <laughs> the, you know it's hard work, uh, but I love the. Um, the conversation that Rodney has around, uh, crisis and reacting to, you know, the, the inevitable firefighting that you have to do. He says, you know, if, if you're going to like get brain surgery and the neurosurgeon is operating on you and there's a, there's a problem, that's not the moment when you want him to throw all of his discipline and standard practices out right. the window and panic and run around and do something crazy. <laughs> it's a, that's the time when you really want them to get down there and just you know like do everything right and follow yeah. the discipline and not lose his cool.
1: Another good example of that it's it's in a Malcolm Gladwell book I can't remember which one but uh, he talks about how airplanes don't crash because one thing goes wrong that we have way more than enough safety checks and stuff built into airplanes that if one thing goes wrong you're okay. It's when it's when ten things go wrong. That's when an airplane crashes. And so, you know, he gives scenarios where, you know, there's this set of events and they keep making the wrong decision at every at every turn and then that leads to disaster. And then they give an example where, you know, he gives an example where it's a ridiculously complicated flight, it's getting worse because of things that are happening. That people are countering by going and waking up people that are asleep, you know, to help them and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's, it's that, you know, you can, you can build in that, that cushion, right?
4: Absolutely, and the, I think the other thing too that XP does well is helping you build up the things that let you respond in that crisis more quickly or more effectively, right? If your deploys are fast, then, you know, not only are you getting that feedback every day, but then when something does go wrong, you can fix the bug, get it out there, and, and not have to worry that, oh, man, every minute we push this out, we've still got another eight-hour deploy ahead of us, or so we've got to go hey, merge hey, it hey. in with six other teams or whatever it is, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I used to work in an organization where it was literally three weeks To, you know, from the moment we said we want to deploy this software to when it showed up in production.
4: Right. And how can you respond to a crisis that way? That's. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wait, roll back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
3: Um, Yeah. Okay. So, um, well, I I brought up uh, design. And I think that's one of the things that I've seen Pivotal do particularly well. And it's not a very common uh, way of operating in the web development community. And that's the, that, and that's how, how designers get integrated into the agile process.
4: So you're actually talking about uh, kind of the visual representation, the user experience, those things. When you say this, well, you're not you're not talking about like software design and, and the...
3: I, I I I'm talking about the the, well, I mean design is such a ambiguous term I guess, but the, but the visual, the visual, the interaction, the graphical designers, you know, basically yeah. pe- people doing the front end design.
4: So this is a newer practice for us, and it's still still growing and still getting better. I would say it's trending in in a really interesting way for us. Um, on the last couple of projects I've been on, we've gotten we' were, we've had a few uh, designers placed on our teams that not only you know have the Photoshop chops, but they're you know familiar with HTML and SaAS and those kinds of things. So I can actually sit down and pair with them as a developer, as an engineer. And you know, find that common intersection where, you know, I might go as far as working with them to go through uh, wireframes and things like that, and they'll come as far back as you know the controller and you know, learning about variables and that kind of thing. And what I really like about that interaction is, on both sides, we understand the we start to learn, get an appreciation for the, you know, the impact of good UX for me as a developer. But then also they can make informed choices about what UX they actually want and the cost that's associated with it because it might be that you know they set up this hot new slider and for them in the wireframe, it's you know draw two images of when it's slid to the left or slid to the right. But then you know when we go to we sit down to implement it, they start to realize, oh my gosh, this is you know X amount of JavaScript and X amount of, images and I got to think about all these different transitions and how does that play into the form state and, and all these other things. And and they realized that there was a lot of complexity here and all I really needed was a radio button, but I thought it looked nice. And so in that future, I'm going to make a, make a choice to, to simplify that piece. Or if I decide that it's really key to that experience, yeah, I'm going to say it's, it's okay to go ahead and incur that cost. I, I,
3: I loved listening to that. (laughs)
4: And, you know, so it's no longer an us versus them. I think the, you know, other experiences that I had prior to Pivotal or even earlier days of Pivotal design or working with client designers, you know, they'd show me, they'd hopefully slice up some, some PSD for me. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, yet another crazy design from these designer folks. And, you know, we'd go implement it without, you know, because we weren't the experts, we didn't feel comfortable challenging it and saying, hey, this is, super expensive. Did you really mean to do this or not? Um, and then vice versa. I think they didn't feel comfortable reaching into the engineering process. So it just builds up builds up trust between the two groups when you actually sit together and, and have that, that overlapping area that you can work together.
3: My, my favorite bit is where you get to the point on the project where there's enough common ground between the design part of the team and the development part of the team that the designer just hands you uh, like, like once once there's trust there that you can do their designs, they'll start getting a little more abstract in the designs and say, okay, we just need a form that asks for their first name and their last name. And you've done enough forms or you have a style guide for what forms are going to look like that they don't feel like they even need to mock up the screen.
4: Absolutely, yeah. The uh, I think, right, to, to further build on that and bring up tools again, um, one of the things that's been developed uh, by... Uh, one of our one of our pivots was um, was just that a style guide, a living style guide, where you know it pulls in all the all the CSS files or SAS files or whatever you're working with, um, and highlights each of the elements. So, right at that point, you just need a wireframe that shows what the fields are, what the text is, and and you know what it's going to look like because all those things just click into place once uh, once you plug them in.
2: Yeah, one thing one thing that uh, strikes me about this because we're talking about the the disconnect that you sometimes have between your designers and your developers and your, you know, your process for overcoming that. But at the same time, I see a lot of organizations that may or may not have that dysfunction, but they have a very similar one with their customer or their product owner or their uh, product manager or things like that. And XP addresses a lot of those as well.
4: And if it doesn't address it directly, it certainly highlights the pain, which I think is another great thing that that XP does where you know, it's easy, easier maybe in waterfall to to assume that hey, this is going to get resolved somewhere down the road, and you know we'll work around it. We'll do some of these other lower priority features to get there, or you know the things that are clear. Whereas um, in XP, since you've got you know the highest priority thing, and you want to work on that, and you're you know you have clear business value attached to each thing that's being done or not being done, um, it's a really interesting and pointed conversation around. This is what we need to be effective. How can we get that thing? Or you know, does it make sense to to do something else. Instead, if we can't get that thing, um, the conversation is is focused and you know, honest and you know, driven by by actual facts.
3: The other side of the um, of the pipeline, I think, you know, you get the designers on one on one side. The other the other end of the pipe is in like a big like waterfall type shop you always have a QA team at the end to make sure that you built what was specified. Right. Uh, <laughs> I, was a, I was a Pivotal for years, and I never saw QA teams. I've worked on a bunch of Agile products or projects, and there's never any QA team. How do you deal with that when you have a customer come in who has a bunch of resources dedicated to QA, and they want to do XP?
4: Yeah, or- so this happened, happened to me, I guess, last year on a project, and it's It's certainly challenging where you know you're accustomed to writing not only unit tests but also automated acceptance tests. And that's really what this Q a team has been focused on doing is is the same kind of acceptance test except by hand and through scripts that they read and then go and click through your app. Um, what we ended up doing was turning that Q a team into a group of of exploratory testers instead, doing things that, weren't automated yet or that were hard to automate and you know new features came out and we certainly reduced the the number of people that needed to be there first of all and then and then right turn them into uh, almost story acceptors but more like at the fringes of that story where uh, um and maybe that we're delivering feature x but then like how does that play into these other things or even even treating them more like uh, a first pass at, at user testing, if you will, like if we were to put this out in the wild or on the street and, and do some guerrilla testing that way. It was almost an, an in-house resource for that um, in many ways.
3: That, that reminds me to plug uh, Elizabeth Hendrickson's book that we're reading as our book club uh, offering this month. It's uh, Explore It. And she, she opens talking about that. What uh, was that conversation she had with somebody about QA where she says that, all of the high value stuff that the qa team discovered is like no matter how big their script of of test suite is that there's all, that, like the value is always the stuff that's not on script right, right? so mm-hmm. uh, so that that's i think that's really cool that you that the approach you're taking is let's let's formalize the qa resources into people whose mandate is to do exploration of the code and, and you know rather than just following these these Easily
2: automatable acceptance suites.
4: Yeah, because if you've got humans available, let's have them do stuff that's hard for machines to do.
2: I like it. I really like it. Um, we're getting close to the end of the time. Is there anything else about XP that we really should uh, cover for people?
1: Well, you mentioned that you think there's are some areas where XP is a bad fit. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
4: Sure. Um, so You know, we, we touched on this a little bit in terms of you know, who you're working with. And if if pairing is something that your company values but you haven't hired for it, then then that can certainly present all kinds of challenges. You know, I think the the thing to do in that situation is to to find people who are interested, whether they self-select or you go through some sort of mock interview process or I don't know what it would be, but but find individuals that are that are interested in working that way. And get them to get started, and then kind of. You, if you're already in an organization, then you can start to make that train that change more more gradually. Um, I think if you want to do an overnight switch, you should definitely expect that some people aren't going to be interested in working in a pairing environment where you know they're expected to socialize their ideas with somebody constantly and have to have to defend or or at least be a uh, you know a, a proponent of their own, a champion of their own propositions. So that's one place that it can it can be interesting. I think the the utility of XP maybe diminishes if you know exactly what you want to build. You know, a situation like that might be you're tearing down some old software and rewriting it in a different language, for example, your whole company just switched to using Rails or maybe you're going Java, I don't know what it would be. But, um, you know, then you're just kind of cloning something and having high-priority stuff maybe doesn't make sense because it's all high-priority and you've got to reproduce each feature line by line that way. But uh, those are the two that, that certainly come to mind first. You guys have any other examples or thoughts of, of when it wouldn't work for, for you?
1: Hasn't there been quite a bit of talk in the past about team size and how that relates to the various Agile practices. Do you have any thoughts on
4: that? Yeah, it was a good good point there. I think I was poking around on the internet and someone put a n- line in the sand about 12-ish people on a project. And that's definitely been my experience as well, that somewhere in between like 8 to 12, for a specific team, a single team with one backlog, things start to get interesting as far as you know being able to populate that backlog with meaningful stories and have everybody understand them to the point where they could peel off any of those, you know, 40 stories in a week. The thing to do in that situation is just start breaking up the the team into smaller groups so they can uh, reduce their communication costs. The, uh, you know, if, if I could draw in front of us now, I'd you know, you think about if you have a single pair on a team, there's just kind of one communication line between that those two people. If you add another pair, so now it's four people, then you've got six communication lines, if you will, or six brains, as Rob Mee likes to talk about. And that's kind of ideal, That's a nice size. Um, you get another pair and it's exponential from there, right? Where I think it's 12 lines or something for six people and then eight just keeps going up. Um, so by the time you get to 12, there's just a bunch of different virtual brains in this pairing scenario that you have to keep up to date uh, if you've ever been in a conference room where there's twelve people and you're trying to get them all to one understand and then two agree on what should be done, uh, it can be can be super taxing. Whereas in a smaller group, it's just going to things things naturally um, arrive at their conclusion more quickly. So the the
3: the other side of that, uh, which is kind of literally the other side of the PM, is uh, sometimes there's an impedance mish, mismatch with. The hosting organization that if you you know if you had a client that was like you know Ford or General Motors or like some you know some giant company that's used to using a very different process and has you know 20 different stakeholders that have to sign off on any change. and then you're trying to run an agile project within this organization or you know, with this organization as a client, there there's often some challenges managing that impedance mismatch
4: you bet and uh, you know this happens to us from time to time when we're engaged with those kinds of clients I think what's interesting is that one we you know as you know as practitioners at XP we come off looking faster than what they're used to anyway um, but maybe not as fast as we're used to working with a client that doesn't have those kinds of impedances um, so it can be frustrating as a developer who's used to going at 110 miles an hour and now they're back at 60 but the you know comparatively to the software that that large company was was used to you know that was like 20 miles per hour kind of thing so it's still a win the other thing that uh, the value that this offers like i mentioned before is it highlights that hey you've got 20 stakeholders that all need to sign off on this and this is slow and busted start thinking about how you can fix that part of it now now that we fix the engineering piece you know there's there's now another level above that that needs addressing and and those kinds of things and we can always make recommendations on on what we think would be best, but that company is going to have way more context around what makes sense for it on how to how to solve that problem.
3: Okay. okay, what about tools? I I don't think we spent much time talking about tools. We've mentioned Pivotal Tracker. There's you mentioned something about the the design uh, style guide tool. Yeah, Pivotal,
4: in the Pivotal GitHub repo, there's a style guide. Floating around. I I, I remember working on some uh, some
3: scripts for doing uh, Git Git for pairs, just little things like that.
4: Uh, One that that just recently came up is Git Duet. I think that came out of ModCloth, maybe. Um, I haven't looked into what that one does. But yeah, there's also a Git Pair script for uh, your commit messages, so they have the dual author on there, Mm -hmm. uh, and you can appropriately attribute things back. What else? Certainly CI. Anything will work. Uh, we tend to use a lot of Jenkins um, for our Rails type projects. Just because we've got, um, I guess, something interesting on top of that is uh, CI bot, uh, CI Borg, excuse me, uh, formerly called what was it? Lobot. Hmm. Uh, so if you're familiar with that, it's just a just a bunch of Chef scripts that get you a Jenkins instance running on AWS real quick. Um, really nice for us because we can then hand that off to our client instead of you know putting it on some Mac mini or physical server within our infrastructure and then try to move that at the end of the engagement we can just swap <laughs> who, who the account belongs to and away we go I remember the days of the Mac minis yes yes certainly and then physical workstations right are important I think there's a there's a handful of shops that that do a fair amount of pair programming but it's not maybe not 100% or 90% or whatever because maybe not because of but one of the the things that gets in the way is just desk setup right you've got to have something that two butts can comfortably sit at where you're not up in someone's space like corner desks that that you're on the inside of very awkward to to be at and try to pair um so we have we tend to have either one large iMac and you know a side monitor that's a good size, or we're moving more and more to a second display, and then two keyboards, two mice, so it's easy to, to reach in. You don't have to physically grab and wrestle away someone's uh, keyboard from them. Right. And, 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 then, and then there's my favorite, which is the tete-a-tete pairing setup. Yeah, I wish we would had more of those desks going on. I think they're, they're maybe a little more space consuming as far as floor goes, but yeah, those have been awesome.
2: Do you have any images of some of these different desk setups so that we can compare them and Josh, them in you've the got
4: show notes? In the right? Yeah,
3: yeah. I, I, I wrote a blog post at Pivotal a couple of years ago that showed some of the setups, and uh, I, I'll put a link to that in the notes.
4: And what was nice about that one was you could look through the gap between the two displays and see each other's face. Right? It wasn't this, this yes. turn to the left and and repetitive stress, if you will. Um, but even just like the separation between looking at screen and code and then Physically turning to look at your pair, it was more of a like I'm going to glance slightly off to the right now to see see the emotional reaction of that pair.
3: <laughs> yeah, you can tell when your pair is cringing more easily. Yeah. Plus the hi- plus the high fives are better.
4: Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so those kind of things, and then even the the machines. If this is what I wanted to say are owned by the team. I guess is what I'm, is is the right way to think about it. That um, it's not an individual laptop assigned to. You will read at the at the beginning of your start, um, so I know that it's not it's going to be customized for the team and not for the individual. So key bindings and things like that are sort of universal, at least within the team, if not the whole company. So it's easy for me to walk up and join a new project or rotate and and work with anybody out there because you know I'll I won't feel like a dum dum sitting down and not knowing your your particular Vim key shortcuts. When I'm like, hold on, I've got to resort this out, and I don't know how to type. Um, so, it kind of gets over that social awkwardness as well, or you know, a picture of your baby or whatever in the background. It loses some of the personalness, but it also you know makes up for it in in just comfort and familiarity with with the developer environment.
3: Yeah, we've talked about that before on the show. I think we and uh, like one of the issues is also power dynamic. And that if, if it was like, if it's one person's office and their personal computer and someone else comes into their office, into their space, into their environment, into their setup, into their key bindings, it can have a, a negative impact on their ability to operate effectively as a team of equals.
4: You bet. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's super important to make it feel like it's everybody's space or if you will, on the other side, nobody's space at the same time. Um, I think everybody's space is the right way to think about it because, you know, I, I see pivots cleaning up after other pivots because the desk is a little bit, you know, gnarly or there's too many index cards laying around and they get straightened up and put into a pile. So like it gets taken care of the same way that the code gets taken care of. It's yeah, not a hands off, nobody owns it. It's a hands on everybody owns it, and the first one to get to it takes care of it both. In the meat space and not.
2: All right. Well, um I hate to cut this off because there's a ton of good stuff that we're getting here, but I- I've got to go take care of some other things <laughs> yeah, and th- uh
3: Maybe we could maybe we could end with uh, like talking about uh, resources and other places to find information.
2: Yeah, that'd be great. And and then we can get into the picks. So
3: so Will, what are other good resources? Uh,
4: you know, definitely if you're interested in getting into, if you just want to read, if you're a reader, uh, Kent Beck's uh, "Extreme Programming Explained" is the place to start. And then from there, you know, I'm just going to throw these in the picks, but they both work. Um, the Pivotal Labs blog, I have to plug that as you know we're always talking about you know a nice mix of code and and what our extreme programming practice looks like as it continues to evolve because every project's making different choices about do we need ci does it make sense you know what does it look like to engage with designers and that kind of thing what do our designers think about engaging with developers so definitely go check that out Um, if you're looking to do more of that you know there's a couple of of educational places to go Um, these nine week intensive, uh, learn to be a developer classes are, are coming up all over the place. And the one that I can speak the most to because I have the most familiarity with it is Dev Bootcamp. You know, it's really how to be a pivot in nine weeks because they go into pair programming, how to, uh, do test driven development. It's Rails and Ruby focused, you know, even Rob Mee has gone over there and spoken a couple of times. So it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things and we've hired a couple of bootcampers, so if you're interested in really getting into it and working that way, um, it's a great way to to get exposed to it in a classroom-type setting. Awesome. Cool.
0: All right. Well, let's go ahead and do the picks. Avdi, what are your picks? So let's see. Today, my picks are uh, – I'll start off with a a fiction pick. I occasionally listen to the Escape Pod podcast, which is a podcast of a short uh, science fiction.
3: Yes, founded, founded by a Rails developer.
0: It's a it's a good podcast. They've been going for a long time, and and uh, they get they get some really good stories. Including, um, I just listened to uh, episode three ninety eight, and the story is called Subversion. Uh, by, <laughs>
3: by
0: is by
2: Get the hero. Uh,
0: <laughs> He's the dirty little get the hero. So, it's it's uh, it's actually closer to what you're thinking than than, than you might think. It's uh, apparently a, a, a new author. Uh, they they got the the scoop on this this story, and it's basically the big idea of this little sci-fi story is what if people could be version controlled and could uh, fork off branches of themselves, and then what happens when you have a uh, one of those long running branches that no longer merges cleanly? <laughs>
3: wow, <laughs> interesting. that's uh that's pretty cool i like that
0: and another pick i tend to get the humble bundle uh games bundles when they come out uh even though i have like no time to play games and usually like with every bundle there'll be you know one game one maybe two games that really like captures my interest which means i play it for more than like five minutes but um i got uh one of the android ones recently and i just started playing the game the room uh, which came with that, and it is for fans of very bad movies, this game is not what you're thinking. Uh, it has nothing to do with the movie The Room, unfortunately, <laughs> but although I understand that there is a video game version of The Room. Go look for that, but um, uh, no, it's this. It's an interesting uh, it's a game that I can play on my tablet, and it's basically you're confronted with this with this room with these puzzle boxes in it really just like one big puzzle box in it. And the whole game is just this kind of atmospheric exploration of the puzzle box as you slowly find little, little things here and there that enable you to open up other parts of it. Um, and it reveals more of itself and, uh, and a story kind of a backstory kind of reveals itself along the way. And, and, um, it's, it's slow paced. It's something I can play in the dark as I'm trying to rock the baby to sleep. And, uh, it, uh, surprisingly engaging. Awesome. That's it for me.
2: All right. Uh, James, what are your picks?
1: So I want to point out a couple of cool events uh, that I think people ought to know about. Um, first of all, uh, Rails Girls is doing a Summer of Code all their own. So kind of like Google Summer of Code or Ruby Summer of Code, uh, but designed on getting uh Rails growth students and other novice programmers uh, into open source, uh, which I think is totally awesome. Sadly, I just learned about it too late, and the campaign is actually going to end before this uh, thing goes out. Uh, but still, I-, I think it's important to point it out because uh, they're looking for um, coaches and stuff. They're going to have, uh, in addition to the usual mentor-mentee model, Uh, They're going to add in coaches who kind of sit in IRC and are available and stuff. I'm sure they'll be looking for people uh, to help with that. So that's something that uh, our listeners could get involved with. And and I think it's just a great goal, right? It's a a good movement uh, and kind of adds a a, a recurring big purpose to Rails Girls and and gives them a way to funnel people in, you know, with – with a a kind of carrot in the future you know yeah get this app going now that you've learned all this you should do our summer of code next year and and stuff and i think that's just awesome so uh this is a great project we should keep an eye on and and do our best to help support in my opinion and if you want to give them money i I bet you could probably get in touch and and give a last minute donation Uh, i'm sure they'd be appreciative so that's one awesome uh, thing that's going on. The other awesome thing going on in July is the Lone Star Ruby Conference. You should come to this conference just anyway because uh, it's typically great. I've been there like five years, I think, uh, maybe four. And um, it's always a good conference. The lineup this year is uh, incredible. Lots of great uh, keynote speakers, uh, including some of some of us and um uh, Sandy Meds, uh, yeah, so great, great lineup. Uh, they've been announcing their talks. It looks like a blast, uh, including speakers we've had on. Nell is going to be there talking about regular expressions, like she did for us recently. And uh, as icing on the cake, uh, all of us rogues will be there. So come out, say hi to us, um, and uh, we'd love to see you all there. Those are some cool events going on this summer, which I think programmers should know about.
2: Yeah, just to add to that, if you're interested in doing some kind of meetup one of the nights, I think that'd be way fun. So just tweet at us and let us know if you're going to come. Josh, what are your picks?
3: Oh, I have one pick this week, and that is uh, one of my favorite authors. His name is Stephen Brust. I know I've ta- I know I've talked to him, talked about him uh, with the Rogues, uh, but I don't think I've I've picked him. Is one of my picks before, but I'm reading one of his uh, recent novels and really loving it. Uh, so I'm going to pick Stephen Bruce. He's ri- he so Stephen Bruce. He's writing this series of novels set in a fantasy world about uh, basically a human assassin living in a world of elves. And if that sounds a lot like an old D D game, that's because Steven Bruce used to play the precursor of Dungeons and Dragons with like uh, Dave Aronson, uh, you, know, you know, the guy with Gary Gygax, who uh, who created Dungeons and Dragons way back when. It, so it, it so the game very very much feels like you're you're running a and campaign. Everybody's running around with artifacts and. You know, people get people die and get resurrected all the time. So but the but the writing is excellent. And, you know, it, Bruce is not afraid to get philosophical or political in his writing, uh, but he always makes it topical to what's going on in, in the novels. Th- there were a couple um, downer novels when Bruce was going through a difficult divorce with his wife that showed up in the novels all over the place. But other than that, the uh, novels are, are just tons of fun. And it's sort of like reading a, um, an Ocean's Eleven or The Sting level it's like that level of complexity in the plots very often, so I like those. So the, his latest uh, book is uh, Tiasa, uh, T-I-A-S-S-A, so that'll be the pick that I put in, because that's what I've been reading like crazy lately. So he's he's a lot of fun, really uh, really worth checking out. He's he's also good on Twitter. Awesome. So that, that's it for me.
2: All right. I'm not sure if I've picked this before. I probably should go look at the picks list, but... Uh... If I have, I'm going to pick it again anyway. Um, there's an app for the iPhone that's been helping me get in the habit of doing things that I really want to do. It's called Commit. It's by Nathan Berry. and uh, if if you're interested, go check it out. Besides that, I, I really don't have anything to pick this week, so I'm going to pass the ball over to Will. Will, what are your picks?
4: My pick is the Crucible. Uh, so you know, it's an awesome place if you're in the Bay Area and you're you're into making stuff. Um, it's kind of like tech shop meets fire, I think is maybe the best way to describe it, where you can do all kinds of things like uh, woodworking, blacksmithing, uh, they have glass flame working, which is a class I took several years ago, um, and then recently took an Arduino class over there, um, and learned how to how to hook small electronics up to larger electronics, and now I've got a mad science project going on that my fiance is like, oh my gosh, why, I've created a monster, essentially. So if that's the kind of thing you're looking for, uh, definitely check it out. It's in West Oakland.
2: All right. And we stole your other two picks and we asked you for um, resources.
4: Yes. All right. Yeah, so Pivotal Labs blog, definitely check it out. And then, uh, and then go to Dev Bootcamp if you really want to get into that kind of development.
2: Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Will. It was an excellent conversation.
4: Hey, thanks for having me.
2: All right, Thank we'll rep, wrap this all up. Uh, we'll hopefully see you at Lone Star Ruby Conference. and We'll catch you all next week.